Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Inside the Celtics Lab podcast, we were expecting to talk all things subjective with this year's NBA draft, but we lost a legend in interim. While there have been plenty of amazing tributes sent out into the ether to honor the life of Tommy Heinsohn, we felt the need to honor him as well. We're joined by special guest Mike Dine in the Reds Army to talk the arc of his career. When we're done, we'll still squeeze in a little draft, excuse me, a little draft talk. Welcome, Mike. How are you feeling? Considering, hey, you know, good. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on. So we've got a bunch of people on because we, we have a lot of people who really would like to talk about how Tommy has touched our lives. So um, instead of me uh, going down a laundry list of people, let's all introduce ourselves. Um, I'll start. Um, Mike Dinan, I've uh, been a Celtics fan since the Bill Russell days and uh, fortunate that I didn't end up a Knicks fan because I was born and raised in Brooklyn. Just by chance, I started rooting for the Celtics, and it has really changed the way my life has gone. I had met Tommy a couple of times, and I have a couple of stories I can share with you about him, and I look forward to having this conversation. Hi, guys. I'm Alex Goldberg. Uh, I write for OTG Off the Glass Basketball, and uh, I also like to post about the Celtics on Twitter. That's most of what I do. Um I became a Celtics fan, I think, really KG, Pierce, and Rondo, and Ray Allen were what got me in, and uh, the whole time that I was watching and have been completely obsessed with them ever since, Tommy Heinsohn was on the air making hilarious calls and just generally enhancing the whole experience of being a Celtics fan, so it's not going to be the same without him. So I am uh, Mark Allison from Celtics Lab. Uh, my introduction to Tommy came in the, the mid-90s, I'd say. Those Celtics teams, I mean, they weren't, they weren't great. And then uh, through the Jim O'Brien era into the uh, – some of my favorite stories go back to there. We can get into that later. But um, then, you know, through the KG and, and uh, Pierce Celtics, and uh, uh, Tommy's just been, you know, like a mainstay for my entire Celtics career. So it's, it's kind, of, kind of strange. Uh, weird feeling. Yeah, and just to round it out, Cameron Tabatabai here from Celtics Hub. Uh, I also grew up in the Boston area, and so I'll embarrassingly admit that my AAM screen name was WaltaFan23. <laughs> and as much as I love Walta, I, I mean, I think we all learned what that meant from uh, Tom Heinsohn. So I'm excited to 
you know, celebrate his life and what he meant to us as fans and as people learning to love the sport of basketball. And of course, I'm Justin Quinn uh, with Celtics Wire. And I was an accident of birth uh, in terms of how I became a Celtics fan. Like some of y'all, I grew up in Manchester in East Hartford, Connecticut. And um, it was just always there. Tommy was just always there. And it's going to be so strange. It's been strange enough just most of this season, this last season without him. But we're going to have to get used to it. So let's let's start at the beginning. Uh, before before he, you know, was the Tommy we knew, um, he was a, a star in high school. He was a star in Holy Cross. He was their all-time leading scorer. I believe he, he led them to an NIT um, championship. You know, he was he was on that team with Bob Cousy before our time, but maybe Mike could give us a little bit of background um, since he was a little closer to that era. Like, what 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 should we know about the early years of, of Tommy's career before he joined the Celtics? Yeah, well, uh, I'm not old enough to have seen Tommy play. I'm not really that old, but uh, he he came to the Celtics uh, as a territorial draft pick. Back in those days, the NBA was less popular than college ball. And so as a way to take advantage of popular college players, the NBA instituted the territorial draft pick. And that was how the Celtics got Tommy because he went to Holy Cross. And what that meant was they would a team would give up their first round pick in the regular draft but they would get to select somebody who played close to them. Tommy was the only one that the Celtics ever did that with, but a couple other examples, um, Jerry Lucas, who was at Ohio state, he went to Cincinnati, Cincinnati Royals, which are now the Sacramento Kings. Um, and Will Chamberlain played college ball at Kansas, but because he was from Philadelphia, this, the Warriors claimed him and they were allowed to do that. So that's how he ended up starting as a rookie in Philadelphia. So it was a little strange, but, uh, you know, that was what they needed to do in that era to capitalize on popularity of the players in a market and sell some tickets. So the Celtics got Tommy, Bill Russell, and Casey Jones all in the same draft, 1956. Was an amazing. That was a pretty good haul. Yeah, pretty pretty good. Yeah. And then uh, Tommy played nine seasons and won eight rings, so he did pretty well for himself. So they were not that great of a team before that draft class. They had made the playoffs a couple of times, but had never won a series. And then it was basically like off to the races at that point. You you came along a little bit after that that era, um, just as he was uh, getting done as a player and starting to, you know, he didn't do it immediately afterwards, if I remember correctly. He took a little time off, but he he actually had a stint in broadcasting before the, yeah. the Gorman era. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well before the Mike Gorman. Uh, Tommy was he retired the end of '65. The first season I followed the Celtics was 65-66, and that happened to be Red Auerbach's last season as the coach. So Tommy wasn't playing anymore. He did do some announcing on local TV, but it was back then it was there was no cable TV yet. It was just 
the rabbit ears on the black and white set and a um, few channels. The local channels that did run the, the Celtic games, they didn't cover every game, not even close. It was just the occasional game here, here and there. And uh, Tommy was uh, the play-by-play man for a couple of years. And I think it was the channel was, if you're from Boston area, Channel 56 would ring a bell. And uh, it was on that that he did the play-by-play for two years uh, right after Red retired. Red was the color analyst. So Tommy and Red together were quite a team. And they were a little bit out of control sometimes. I do remember watching them put, uh, do their announcing on a couple of games. And this one time, I, I'll probably mess up the delivery, but Tommy was doing the play-by-play and one team scored and the Celtics came right back down the court on a fast break. And Tommy goes, and Koozie lays it in and, and Russell lays it in as a, the Celtics counter. And Red goes, the Celtics counter? What is counter? And Tommy goes, what, you want me to say they tabletopped? That was it. So <laughs> That's fantastic. They, they thought they were amusing. Maybe in the moment they were, but hey, take it with a grain of salt, you know? I, if anyone can find footage of those broadcasts, <laughs> they need yeah. to release it. Just the audio would do. I so, didn't pay big money to hear that. So you actually started following um, as a fan going to games um, about the time that he shifted out of that and into coaching. Could you tell us like what, what it was like to be a fan um, in the stands when we got to see those glorious suits that he was known for wearing and uh, winning a couple more titles for the Celtics? Yeah, Tommy was out of really technically he was out of basketball for a year or two. Uh, I don't know how much announcing he still did. He did have a successful career as an insurance executive and salesman. He was uh, a sales leader for a company in Massachusetts. And then he later ran an agency. And But he didn't want to coach. He was asked by Red if he would take over the coaching when Red retired. And Tommy declined because he didn't want to have to try to coach bill russell they had been teammates and not that there wasn't respect there but i think uh tommy recognized that russell was his own man and he probably couldn't do the job that red did with russell so tommy held back and then when russell retired as a player coach they needed a new coach that's when tommy came in by that time personally i had as I mentioned, I grew up in Brooklyn, but by then I was going to college and I happened to go to BU. Just maybe coincidentally, because the Celtics played in Boston. <laughs> um, so I was over at the Garden a lot. I did get to see Russell and Sam Jones last season. That was pretty good because they went out as winners, as we all know. So then Tommy got hired and... The Celtics were, of course, rebuilding because Russell had left and Sam Jones had left and they were just not going to win anything without them. And it took a couple of years to get them back, the Celtics back into the playoffs. They did draft Dave Cowens 
Tommy uh, was an innovator. He saw that Cowens could play the center, even though at that time the common conventional wisdom was that he was too short to play center because he had the era of uh, the big guy in the middle. You know, everything revolved around the center in that era. And so Tommy implemented what you could say was the first small ball. Uh, having Cowens at the five and shooting from outside, he'd post up, sure, but he didn't do it every time. And he was mobile, and he changed the game, and they were successful doing it. And, yeah, Tommy wore the plaid coats, and he yelled at the referees. <clears throat> there was one game in particular I'm just going to tell you about that was – I, to this day, I can't forget it. It was uh, early season, 1972. And the Celtics were playing the Buffalo Braves, which are now the LA Clippers. Buffalo Braves. Uh, and that was the Bob McAdoo team. The Celtics, after three quarters, had a 103 to 60 lead, 43 point lead. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. That's amazing. Yeah. And now this was in the days before the three-pointer. So Tommy takes out all the starters, as you would expect. They, the Braves start catching up. They're pressing. They're stealing the ball. They have this guy, Randy Smith, who is super fast. And he's all over the place, uh, making steals, attacking the rim. The lead is shrinking. Okay, it's down to 30. Pfft, still no problem. 20. Oh, how much time is left? 10. Hey, what's going on here? And Tommy on the sideline, I was happened to be sitting where I was looking directly at the Celtics bench and he was fuming. He was so pissed that these guys were letting them back in the game. In the end, the time ran out. They didn't Celtics didn't exactly win that game. They just held on to that game and they, they ended up winning by eight points, but, Buffalo scored 58 points in that quarter, and it was it's still the all-time record for points in one quarter in an NBA game. And but Tommy was typical Tommy, you know, as as a coach. He when you hear him, heard him on uh, TV, and saw him yelling at the refs and doing his um, instructional tips on on uh, with Mike. It was like he was still coaching. And that's always how he was. I think Gorman said as such that he approached the commentary game as if he was the head coach of the Celtics and that he would just hold open court with whomever was there to listen. I don't think he ever, I think that's one of the enduring things is that he just never gave up how much he cared about the team, even when he wasn't paid quite as handsomely to do so. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And he had an influence on these guys. Just uh, and the tributes to him just uh, yesterday, I think it was, uh, I saw uh, an interview with, um, of course, I'm forgetting who it was with, but it was, oh, um, it was a former player, uh, Tony Allen, sorry, Tony Allen. And he said how important it was to everybody that they get Tommy points. They were motivated to get Tommy points. And Tommy himself was not like, cheering them on go get it you know he was just he was there as a quiet influence over them but that's how much they cared about 
what he was and they respected him and wanted to prove to him that they uh, could do what he thought they could do, live up to his ideals. So that, that period where the Tubby points, that was kind of a, a product of uh, his era with Gorman Broadcasting, if I understand it correctly, because I mean, that, that when it started was even before my time at 44 years old. Like in that, that part of my life, they were just kind of on the television uh, as I ran around and played Nintendo or whatever. Um, so I didn't really know who they were. But that's really the point where I think he started to come into all of our lives um, as younger fans. I was going to say, you know, I think the stuff about Tommy being uh, kind of this tactician designing the original small ball offense is just so interesting to me. And I would, I would love to do more research on that. But I think it really speaks to uh, which, what, what kind of rapidly became a truth uh, kind of right after Tommy's passing, which is that he really did influence not just the Celtics, but the entire league. Uh, he was a pretty titanic figure in the history of the NBA. And this, you know, from the kind of tactical changes that he made as a coach, the kind of personality that he inspired as a broadcaster, and just the fact that he was seemingly involved in every aspect of the league at some point in his life uh, is, is really fascinating to me. And what's kind of interesting, I think, is that... Um, you know, he didn't, he didn't just set the tone for the league tactically. Uh, he, he also was kind of a culture setter in a lot of ways. Uh, I think there's a lot of players, as you said, Mike, that really look up to Tommy Heinsohn uh, and kind of when they came to the garden, either as Celtics players or as opponents, wanted to put on good performances while he was there. That's a real thing. I think some of that brilliance too is lost with the fans being that Tommy was so emotional and in the way he broadcasted and talked in the games. I think that obviously Celtics fans understand we, we know, but you know, from, from the perspective of other fans, they think he's just this crazy old kook who, you know, uh, you know, is super biased in the games and stuff. And I, I think a lot of people don't realize like, like you said, some of the, some of the, his brilliance and how it's affected the league because of the way that he broadcasts and because of the way that, you know, he, uh, he carried himself during broadcasts. And I yeah, think that's also, a great point. Great point. As a, um, as a history teacher, I would be remiss if I didn't dust off something from the past. So we like to talk about how LeBron in 2010 changed the NBA. He empowered NBA players to take control of free agency and really set their own course. And the reason that this off season is about to be so crazy uh, it was a lot to LeBron in 2010. 2010, right? That's when the decision was? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, but it's because of Tom Heinsohn that there's free agency in the first place. He was the second. He helped found the NBA PA. He was the second president of the Players Association. And in 1964, he threatened an all-star game strike uh, <clears throat> until the league adopted free agency. Prior to that, uh, and perhaps, Mike, you could tell us more about this. I, I don't know. But... Uh, there was no such thing as free agency. And Tom Heinsohn, I mean, we know him as agitating with the refs, but it seems like even from his earlier days, he was agitating with much higher powers. So I think yeah. for so, so long, he has been setting the pace and setting the culture for all our, not just the Celtics, but the whole league. 
Yeah. And just to loop it all back around to kind of his, his legacy in the current day, you know, I think it is true, uh, Mark, you mentioned that Tommy is in some respects kind of one of the Celtics best kept secrets historically in terms of how much he actually impacted the league today. But uh, you know who it's not a secret to is the Celtics players. Um, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, even former players like Tony Allen, as you mentioned, Mike, and Isaiah Thomas uh, really looked up to this guy and genuinely came and talked to him and asked for advice uh, throughout his tenure as a broadcaster. And that was true even up until last season. I know in particular that Jalen Brown uh, really took the loss of Tommy hard. And I think Tommy was something of a mentor to him. So, Yeah, um, to, to go back to uh, the talk, discussion about the Players Association, uh, not only did they not have, they didn't have a union of any kind, but they weren't even looking for free agency. They were looking for more basic things. They wanted a, a pension plan. They uh, wanted to have full-time trainers because teams did not have full-time trainers. And, you know, these days you can't even imagine that that would be the case. I mean, the, nobody had an assistant coach in the sixties until um, yeah, and nobody did. Even when Russell was a player coach, he had no assistant, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, so, oh, another thing that the union was looking for are the players, if they were going to unionize, they used to play Sunday afternoon games on national TV, but they'd have to play Saturday night and then travel. And they just said, can you just give us a break? And the owners had all the power and wouldn't, accommodate any of their requests and wouldn't even meet with them. A couple of times there were promises to have a meeting to discuss the forming of a player's union. And then the uh, owners broke those promises. So that is why Tommy in his position as president of the union, he uh, took uh, extreme measures they were going to be on national TV for the all-star game. And here he was holding the game hostage along with all of his fellow players. And they did get what they wanted. And uh, that was the beginning of uh, the players association and all the benefits that they have. So, yeah, he was a trendsetter, an innovator, you know, something I just I'll make one more comment here that, he had uh, the career in insurance that we mentioned. He was in management a lot and sales. He knew how to motivate people. And I'm sure that played into his success in insurance sales. Also, he is an artist. We haven't mentioned that, but in his personal time, he is a painter and he's self-taught apparently. And he was outstanding. So, between the management and the art, those two things together, they're ideal characteristics for being a coach. He can motivate people, analyze situations, think strategically, and he had creativity. And what more do you need from a coach on a basic level? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's so interesting growing up a Celtics fan and, and just enjoying this uh, unbridled enthusiasm as a sportscaster 
and to grow older and kind of peel back the layers of all the different ways, not only did he touch the Celtics organization, but the NBA as a whole. I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's really instructive. I mean, I think we kind of forget how dynamic everyone in, in sports is as an individual. And Tommy laid it bare. He didn't let you forget that he was his own person full of emotion and dynamism. And even still, uh, this week has just been like such a celebration and how many different ways uh, he chose to live his life. He chose to enrich the lives of others. He chose to antagonize referees and everything in between. Um, Mike and anyone else, can I ask, do you have like a one Tommy memory that really strikes a chord as a Celtics fan? I got a, I got a good one. Yeah, go for it. Um, so in the uh, so this is probably it had to be oh one oh two Jim O'Brien Celtics uh, Vin Baker Vin Baker was on the team uh, and anyway so uh, we were playing Phoenix uh, I think it was a bad Phoenix team or at least a young it might have been like Amari's rookie year Sean Marion was there but they, they didn't have Steve Nash yet um, bad Phoenix team uh, Celtics were. Um, getting uh, Pierce was just getting abused. I, I was in high school. And, and th- I think why I remember this so well is because it was like at that point, like when you're, you, you change from just like a casual sports fan to like, Oh, you're like, I was like locked in and, and kind of following the league and, and understanding the game a lot better. And um, I, I'll, I, you know, Tommy had been broadcasting games since I was a kid. So it was nothing new, but it, there was something about this game, but he, he was, you know, the Pierce was just getting abused and, and, um, you know, he, he was obviously doing Tommy, Tommy saying Tommy kind of things, uh, you know, about the refs and, and it was just a little more than, than I was used to at that point. And, um, and I remember, I think Vin Baker got ejected for a hard foul. And after Pierce had been getting mugged all night the Tommy just lost it. And, um, they ended up losing the game. It was just a, just a one of those you know bad poorly refereed games and um and afterwards and then so it was on sports center that night and after the game tommy and doing his stand-up with mike and he was talking um oh you know uh mike center and he's asking tommy about the game and you remember him saying he said oh those referees i went over and i talked to them and i told them it was the worst officiated game i've seen all year and um and he's, you know what they said to me? Merry Christmas. Those smug little, and, and, and it was, it was on like sports center, like that night. Like, and I, that's when I realized, oh, wow, this guy is something different. Like you just don't, you don't see this from broadcasters. I have to steal uh, your, you know, in, in the show notes that we, we put together ahead of this, uh, you were originally going to talk about one of my other favorite moments um, I'm still going to have to mention the time that he compared uh, Greg Steemsma to Bill Russell. Yes. It was a throwaway <laughs> comment. Epic, epic, <laughs> it, was, it was a throwaway comment, but it has lived and endured in, in history. Um, <laughs> but the all of Australia comment, I don't even remember the game oh. anymore. Uh, I oh, just I remember, you. I just remember it was like a record scratched and everyone just stopped talking and they were just like, is he, is he talking about Aaron? It, it was Alex that, that, First, yeah, that brought this up. So that that was in a preseason game against the Charlotte Hornets. <laughs> it, was just, it was an absolutely wretched affair. 
Like and nobody was trying hard at all. They were just going through the motions, just a total slog of a game. And I remember that uh, I was like about to just like tune away. It was like end of the second quarter. And I was like, I surely have better things to do than watch this preseason game. And then Tommy made that comment and I lost it and stayed watching the rest of the game just to hear another Tommy like blurb. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I've had um, the good fortune of covering a few Celtics games in person and use Tommy and Mike and Scal and all of them. They prep right there in the cafeteria and, you know, part of me thinks Tommy played a ball. He understood that it was an entertainment product and other folks with more connections to the media will know better than I, but it honestly looked like he was pretty bored in most of those production meetings. It looked like he <laughs> wasn't necessarily bobbing along like everyone else. And I think, you know, with the Tommy points, with the I love Walta, with uh, all the, the little guy, I think he understood the bully pulpit he had as the color commentator for the Celtics. But at the same time, I mean, I think that the suggestions that he's just like another guy up in section 323 with one or two drinks in him, just having a go at, at whatever the issue is of the game. I think that holds. I think uh, he was yeah. just riffing. He just loved the Celtics. And if he made a comment about Aaron Baines's body, collateral damage for just riffing, you know? <laughs> He, well, he always had that. He always had the uh, the the Coke or Pepsi or whatever it was, container uh, with no lid on it, right there on the uh, broadcast table. You you wouldn't be hard to say that we might have been on some rum in there too. <laughs> <laughs> well, so the most fun I have ever had as a Celtics fan actually did not come in a year where the Boston Celtics won the title. Uh, it came during Isaiah Thomas's incandescent season as the lead guy for Boston. And a huge part of why that season was so much fun was because Tommy fucking loved Isaiah Thomas. And you could hear mm-hmm. it in every broadcast. I mean, that dude has players that he gets like, he's, he's a lot like a fan. He has players that he gets really attached to and he's not afraid to express that on the broadcast. And I think that was a big part of what made him so endearing and what made that season so fun. Tommy, was so enthusiastic about Isaiah Thomas that I think the entire city kind of got on board with something that originally a lot of people were kind of questioning and were not particularly enthused about. Tommy in a lot of ways created the little guy movement that made Isaiah Thomas a thing. Well, we've got one more interaction or I guess you could say memory that we wanted to include a friend of the pod, Tom Lane, shout out to Tom. For him, his his favorite memories of Tommy was how he was forced to lug around the ball bags even after winning a championship. <laughs> um, and the time that he was asked to start smoking again because he sucked after he quit smoking. Yeah, I remember Red saying, uh, Red, Red, a Red quote of saying, well, I don't care if he wants to kill himself as long as it doesn't slow him down on the court when, they, when he was asked about him smoking. <laughs> Red had a habit of picking on Tommy anyway because he knew Tommy could take it. That was in back when Tommy was playing and they would have practice. And Red didn't want to yell at some of the players because they were sensitive or would take it the wrong way or not react the way he wanted them to. But he knew Tommy would let it roll off his back. 
And so he picked on Tommy a lot to the point where Tommy once had to tell him, quit it because the ref, uh, rookies are stealing my socks out of my locker. You know, <laughs> respect me a little more. But um, <laughs> that was Tommy. Whatever the team needed, he, he would do it. And uh, he was – he is Mr. Celtic. There's no question about that. So you actually, you said you, you had um, some, some Tom meeting stories. Meeting him? Yeah. 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 I've met him a couple of times. Uh, one time he, he got me in trouble with my boss uh, at work. <laughs> <laughs> this was in a period of time after Late seventies, he got fired by the Celtics because the team was in decline, and the owner at the time, Irv Levin, wasn't um, particularly enthused with Tommy at that point. So he got fired, and he went back into the insurance business. And I worked at that time for an insurance company also, and we had a sales conference on the Cape at a hotel resort called the Seacrest. And Tommy came as a guest speaker to talk to our sales reps. And so Tommy had written this book, uh, not, not this one, given the hook, but uh, he wrote one before that. And he had told a story in the book about Bill Russell playing one-on-one -on -one and could never beat Larry Siegfried. Larry Siegfried was just your average shooting guard, but Bill <laughs> Russell couldn't beat him hard one to on believe. One. <laughs> so Tommy came, he gave the speech. Uh, it was well-received. Everybody loved him. Then he finished up and he left. So then my boss gets up on the stage and wants to show that he read Tommy's book. So he says, he starts telling the story about Bill Russell. And there was one player he couldn't beat in one-on-one. -on -one. Does anybody know who that was? And, of course, he never expected anybody to answer it. But I had read the book, and I piped up, yeah, it was Larry Siegfried. Well, my boss, he could have knocked him over with a feather. And he was <laughs> shocked. And it threw him all off. And he lost his point and couldn't even practically finish what he was saying. And you can be assured I got reamed out pretty well after that. What are you doing answering that question? <laughs> that was one time. And another time I, uh, they used to have a thing in Rhode Island where I live called the special Olympics celebrity carnival. Mm -hmm. It was a fundraiser and Tommy and Mike were there as uh, representing the station they were on at the time, which was called sports channel. And uh, you could go in and get your picture taken with them. So obviously I did that. And they were just two nicest guys. Any little joke that I might have made, they were laughing their head off and just very cordial and friendly and just like you would have thought they would have been. And it was just a nice memory. Very cool. Love that. Yeah, he was very charitable with his time, all things considered. I mean... As someone who had won eight championships as a player, two more as a coach, that he wanted to be in broadcast for 40 years is in and of itself pretty amazing. But uh, Mike, I agree, as, as best I can tell, he was never above regional charities and things like that. And right. um, 
the way that we think about NBA superstars now, I mean, they're great people, but there's a certain ego that you kind of expect. And he was really, you know, down in the weeds, down the grass, making sure that the, whatever kid came through the garden felt loved. Good. Let me real quick uh, mention one thing you, you just talked about almost 40 years doing the Celtics broadcasting. And he also was on CBS for a few years as national TV. Uh, you know, the Hall of Fame, Tommy is in, as we know, as a coach and as a player. But Mike Gorman has never been honored by the Hall of Fame, even though they have this award called the, the Kurt Gowdy Award for print and electronic media. And every year they pick somebody to honor with this award. And it's people like uh, Doris Burke or Mike Breen on the electronic side. And Mike has never been chosen. And I was, I would love it if the hall of fame would induct Mike and Tommy as a team, or at a minimum, give them this bun, um, Kirk Gowdy award and recognize that they've been together for, I think they were the longest running duo in sports announcing ever. Yeah, that sounds right. I mean, since 1981, I think it is. That's yes, incredible. Yes. And, you know, I think that would be a great way to cap off uh, the recognition that Tommy deserves. And it would give good um, recognition to Mike Gorman, too, which he totally deserves. Yeah, long time coming. Yeah, the, the hall actually has a, a pretty cool um, thing. I don't know if you guys have been in there, but the um, there's a really cool exhibit with, with Tommy, and he, it talks and stuff like that, and it's at the broadcasting booth. But but like you said, um, Mike should definitely be, uh, you know, he should be in there too. So if there's a way to Tommy put them, happy. Yeah, and th- and if, if that, there would be a, a wish on his way out, I think that would be a, a awesome way to fulfill that. Yeah. And I tell you what, I mean, the way that Tommy made you feel as a fan is the ultimate lasting impression of, of how great of a, a man he was, but he's already one of only four people in the hall as a player and a coach. And to add uh, broadcasting to that, I think that says it all right. I mean, I don't know that anyone else really has their fingerprints on NBA basketball like that. You know, I think, one way that uh, I think Tommy's legacy also will continue to live on is in that I have a theory that every Celtics fan has a little bit of Tommy in him or her somewhere buried deep down inside. Every time that you cuss out a ref on your television or every time that you get way too hype about a Celtics role player going off in a critical game, you know, I think everybody's got a little bit of that in them. And uh, I know, for example, that every time I scream at a ref going forward, I'm going to think a little bit of Tommy Hudson. Yeah, <laughs> that's for sure. I think that's probably a good place to leave it because we could talk about Tommy all day and we'll still never do him justice. Um, Mike, thank you for joining us. Um, we'd love to have you for the draft stuff. I know it's not your bag, but thank you joining us today we really appreciate it yeah thanks, you're welcome Mike. you're welcome thanks for asking me uh tommy fantastic guy and a great celtic and i had i'm happy that i had this opportunity to talk about him a little bit likewise
Yeah, Mike, thanks so much for uh, sharing your stories. I mean, what an incredible look at Tommy. Yeah, this was great. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you. So let's dive into a very, very subjective analysis as if, you know, we have some very, you know, highly data-driven analyses available to us at this moment. I kid. Of the 2020 draft and players we do like and guys we do not like really any realistic point where the Celtics could be drafting, which is basically everywhere considering how many picks they have. So we've got kind of like a couple of different frames to be thinking about this in. Um, We have the 14th, 26th, 30th, and 47th pick. We could trade up or out. Obviously out is not going to be too interesting for the topic of conversation, Um, but we do have the ability to kind of move up into the top 10, um, maybe even fairly high, depending on what we're willing to give up, Um, or maybe a little bit close to 14. Uh, If we're being a little more conservative, we could also see something with the latter two picks um, in the first round and or the third uh, be put together to kind of get us into the middle range of the last third. So let's just start at the top and talk about, uh, you know, if we go all in, who do we like? You know, who who do we want to just like push all the chips into the middle of the table if we're going to in this draft? Anyone? Well, I want to start by uh, saying that I think it's going to be extremely hard for Boston to get a top like three or four pick it seems like the teams that are trading out of the very top of the lottery are going to be looking for a combination of assets and picks that the Celtics probably don't have unless they're willing to include someone like Marcus Smart in a deal which I don't think they're going to do so realistically you're probably looking at the kind of middle to late lottery as the most likely place for the Celtics to trade up into given uh that I think a natural fit for what the Celtics are looking for uh, going into this offseason uh, is Onyeka Okongwu out of USC. Uh, you know, I think he's a super high, Q, high IQ defender. Uh, he's got a ton of motor as well. He tries really hard in every game. Uh, he's got gigantic arms and he is just always kind of there on the defensive end. He's very switchable. He can play a lot of different positions and uh, stay. He has the lateral quickness to stay with most matchups on the perimeter. There are some questions about how impactful he's going to be as an offensive player um, going forward. But I think that given what the Celtics team is looking for out of uh, their front court as far as offensive production, which is really more than anything a rim roller and somebody who can be a kind of pressure release valve for the Celtics' more talented offensive players, I think Okongwu would put fit pretty nicely into that role. And I think he would be somebody that you could grab probably at the sixth, seventh, or even eighth pick and uh, still make a huge difference. Cam, you got a chance to see his uh, pre-draft media availability today. What were your impressions? Yeah, it's uh, it really seems like he's a high... Uh, high character guy. You and I actually were talking about this. He's got, he really shoots the gap between confidence and self-awareness. These kids are 19 to 21, 22 years old. So you can forgive them if they're not, 
you know, polished if they don't know how to handle it on Zoom or something like that. But he seemed really comfortable talking about his strengths, really comfortable talking about the things he's working on, really comfortable talking to the media. And I think what's interesting about the Celtics is, you know, you can take a flyer on a kid who is unpolished with the media, with um, all of the different handlers and people who come with being an NBA star. If you're going to go and win 25 games and give him a few years, but the Celtics are trying to integrate someone into a team that wants to go back to the finals. And they're going to have to pick a kid who since his days at AAU has been answering to no one has been the best player on the team he's ever always ever played for. And now the Celtics are looking to potentially, if they do move up in this draft, pick a kid who has only ever known the world and have him come and I don't know, be the eighth man, ninth man. So you're going to have to, the Celtics, a cultural fit is going to be huge. You're going to have to pick a kid who uh, his eyes aren't too big, aren't bigger than his NBA stomach, right? He's going to have to probably ride the pine a little bit, maybe even go up into Maine and play some G league ball. And Justin, you and I are on some calls. I won't name names, but there are a few guys who, when they were asked about the G league, they said, no, I'm not doing that. Uh, And I don't think the Celtics can afford to bring in a, kid with a big ego and have him be the sixth or seventh option on the team. So a Kungwu is, uh, I hope I'm saying that right. I don't think I am is it, it really does seem like he, I don't know how many times he's had humble pie, but it looks like he's got, he could have a few mouthfuls. He could, he could hang out and um, integrate himself into a team. He said as such in his call. So I think Alex is right. That would be probably uh, the Celtics would have to, get pretty lucky in the draft or trade their way up. And I don't know what the appetite for that is, but it seems like he's the type of young man who has the chops on the court, but more importantly in the locker room and off the court. So another guy that I would be comfortable with this kind of a trade up scenario, and he he really has been going back and forth. uh, Please excuse the people racing outside of my house um, is Killian Hayes. He is another one of the types of players who has the upside that makes it worth pushing all the chips in uh, longer term. We already kind of discussed why that is, but I mean, really, he does have that like Harden-esque ability uh, to him. And it's not just a lefty thing. It's also just the the variety of ways that he can score. Um, He defends pretty well. He's big. And he can probably help now, which is the most important thing. He won't be a star now, but I mean, he can probably come off the bench, handle, handle the ball a bit, give, give some offense to the second unit and, and be a generally helpful player. So that's exactly the kind of prospect that the Celtics really need to aim for, particularly if they're going to make such a big investment with their, with their draft resources. Yeah, I guess just being factually accurate, it looks like the Celtics have been tied to Isaac Okoro. Again, I, I'm not a college hoops guy, so I don't really know if I'm saying that correct. Sorry, Isaac. Uh, he's a 3 and D wing. Uh, it would integrate nicely into the team. I don't know too much about him. Seems like he's a good player that could get drafted anywhere from, I don't know, 7 or 8 to all the way at 14, and Celtics wouldn't have to make a trade. So I think just because I today, today being Friday, have seen a lot of uh, stories tying, tying his name rather to the Celtics – we ought to, ought to mention that, you know, there's this three and D kid out of Auburn that could very well end up in a Celtics uniform. For sure. I think uh, Okoro is, um, you know, I think the wing position as it stands right now for the Celtics is not necessarily the highest area of need. It depends a lot on what Gordon Hayward does, 
but uh, I do think that should they look to bolster their wing rotation, Okoro would be a natural fit. And it might simply be a case of best player available if Celtics are able to trade up and Okoro is there and he's Danny likes him more than he likes anybody else who's there. Uh, I think he would have no problem taking him. I want to go back to Killian Hayes for a moment. You know, I think, uh, Justin, your point that uh, the Celtics could really use some bench scoring is really important because I think in a lot of ways that was the Celtics Achilles heel, particularly in the playoffs this past year. Um, Brad Wanamaker is a perfectly solid, if unspectacular, backup ball handler. But uh, Delta Pitt, baby. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, and I, and I like Brad Wanamaker and think that he has a role on this team. But relying on him to be the primary offense initiator off the bench is a dicey proposition. And Killian Hayes could bring a much needed scoring punch uh, for that bench unit. I definitely have questions about his lateral quickness and about his ability to be an NBA level defender. I think there are going to be times when he's going to get uh, blown by against more experienced backup guards. But uh, his offensive upside is so high that I think uh, he would be a natural pick at this position. And, you know, you have to also consider that ultimately the future of this team is going as far as Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum take it. And Kemba Walker uh, is a really good basketball player and somebody that I would like to keep on my team for the foreseeable future. But he also is on the wrong side of 30. He has had some knee issues and he's got a big contract. And it might make sense if you're looking for long-term planning for Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown's prime, it might make sense to take a high upside guard who can provide offense for when Walker is starting to get a little long in the tooth in a couple of years. And not to mention what that would do for even in the short term of allowing him to maybe, maybe uh, lighten the load for him a little bit uh, and having a guy like that, that can score. And, and um, you know, like you said, it, it's, it's definitely a different look than what we get from Wanamaker. Whoever's playing backup point guard this coming season is not playing 10 minutes a game, 15 minutes a game. They're going to be playing a considerable amount of of, of floor time just to try to preserve those knees as much as possible, particularly early in the season. And, you know, for a player like Killian Hayes, that would actually be really good developmentally because he's going to be expected to compete at a high level, but he isn't necessarily going to, at least every night, be expected to produce on that high level. They can pull out Kemba for the big games and kind of let him have some run I guess some of the lesser teams so he can kind of cut his teeth and get used to the NBA game. Yeah. And if Gordon Hayward is on his way to Indiana or God bless him, the Knicks, he's an underrated playmaker and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum kind of lack in that department. And Marcus Smart is busy playing free safety. So uh, <laughs> it's important to have, a, I think, a playmaking guard. I, I, I hop in if I'm wrong about this. It seems like we're somewhat in agreement that the Celtics are looking to get big down low or maybe bring in a backup point guard who can hopefully play a little bit of defense, but also, um, you know, share the ball and kind of run the offense, which interestingly enough, my favorite player in the draft does neither of those things, but <laughs> I, I think we're in agreement that that's where the Celtics are looking. So what about people we do not like for such a move? So I can jump in here. Um, I've been looking at the top of the lottery a lot, and uh, I think that 
there's definitely some players with really high upsides that could do a lot of uh, things. And I think Justin might disagree with me on some of the, my assessment of those players. But uh, I do think if there's, if there's one area that I'm a little concerned with, I've been hearing far too many Andrew Wiggins comparisons for Anthony Edwards to make me feel comfortable. He's got some incredible physical ability. He's a really strong, really bouncy and athletic player. And uh, his shot seems to be pretty good as well. But I typically do not like to hear dudes drifting in and out of games and not caring. That is exactly the opposite of what the Celtics team needs. And I think even best case scenario for Edwards, he's, he's going to take a couple of years to blossom if indeed that's going to happen. So I would stay away. But I also don't think that the Celtics are going to trade high enough to take him anyway. So. Well, there's been some some news that he is very, very out of shape, or at least that's what uh, Jonathan Gavoni was saying. And, you know, I mean, if you were pretty sure you were going to go one or two in the draft and you didn't need to be working out all the time, I could see how you might pack on a couple extra pounds and then suddenly you don't look so good. That said, I don't know if it's true. I'm not going to, you know, try to figure out if this is a smoke screen or whatever, because like you said, it's not very likely that it's going to be a player that is on Boston's radar uh, for several reasons. Um, another one for me, and I think his, his potential is sky high. He's very, very possibly one of the most talented, if not the most talented prospect in the draft. And that's LaMelo Ball. And the reason I dismiss the idea <laughs> is not because of his family. I don't think I think we've seen from the Lakers that if your if your franchise is like just no this is not happening, you can at least get a semblance of calm. That said, the the reason why I am down on the mellow ball, uh, in general and particularly for the Celtics because he would be one of the worst possible places. Not that he has really any realistic chance of landing there, um, is just because he needs to be catered to at least so far in his career, all the teams he has been on had been revolving around him. And that's not going to happen on an NBA roster. He's very talented, but he's not that talented. Um, no one is going to completely tear down their entire roster just to fit whatever game works best for him. So he is going to have to adapt and all the skills that he needs to work on, on his shooting, his defense, these are skills you need to listen and I, I do not know him well enough to say anything about his ability to listen to coaches, but when he is in media availability sessions, his typical answers are, yep. <laughs> what? <laughs> nope. And that just, it just, for me, you know, and again, I am not an expert on LaMelo Ball or anything about his personality, but my, my very minimal exposure to him is that, he doesn't seem especially coachable and I haven't heard anyone describe him that way. And he really needs to be to unlock the kind of player we want him to be. I do think he's going to be that player, but I think it's going to take him several years longer than many people expect to really reach that potential. And that's just not going to work with Boston. By the time he's coming into the player he needs to be, we will be discussing whether or not we want to continue with the, 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 the Jays on the Celtics, like what, the, what their future is going to be. It's going to be towards the end of the next extension. Uh, Justin, I just want to push back ever so slightly. I think okay. the Charlotte Hornets are absolutely willing to risk it all and tear down their entire franchise. <laughs> risk it I, all. They, or the Knicks. Or the Knicks. And they should. And they should. Uh, 
<laughs> All right. So what if we, what if we think? I mean, the real mythology of Trader Danny is that he doesn't actually pull trigger on big trades. Um, so what if we back away from the lottery and take a look at, uh, if not the 14th pick around the 14th pick, maybe the Celtics are able to flip number 14 and number 30 to get up a few picks. Do we have anyone kind of in the mid teens that we're eyeing? I know I have a few Alex. Yeah. So there's two that have really stuck out to me as being uh, pretty strong fits in this area. First one is my boy, Kyra Lewis Jr. I, since the, since the first mixtape I saw, I've been in love. I think this dude is going to be a really strong NBA player. There are concerns that he is a little skinny and that maybe his three-point percentage is not as good. It's not going to translate as well to the NBA as it did to college. And I don't care. He is extremely fast. He can handle the ball in the open court. And if the Celtics want to win the title, they are going to need to take the team that they currently have and get, I would say, four to five more strong possessions a game. And they will be in position to make a deep run. Kyra Lewis is a kind of guy who can shuffle his feet, stay in front of uh, offensive players on the perimeter, get steals and get out in the open court for transition buckets. It's something that the Celtics bench unit has been sorely lacking. And I think if we brought Kyra aboard, that would make so many of our problems for that bench offense disappear. Another dude that I also really like, and this one is less of an easy fit, but another player that I think could help immediately is Sadiq Bey. Uh, This is a guy who strikes me as similar profile to Robert Covington just doing the dirty work, threes and staying in front of dudes, getting up in their face, contesting shots, just making life generally hell for his opponents. I love his versatility, uh, especially in switchable lineups and the idea of a lineup that features Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Grant Williams, and Sadiq Bey has got me thinking some thoughts. Let's put it that way. Yeah, interestingly enough, the uh, ESPN has them going at 13 and 14, uh, Bay and Lewis. So they're they're right in that that wheelhouse there. There's another prospect I would be into in this range. I think it would be worth trading up. I don't think it would be quite worth trading all the way up. Uh, some people have him pretty high in these mocks, not as a real like top overall pick, at least unless Minnesota trades back. Uh, in the, you know, in which case it's not really that way, but um, this would be Tyrese Halliburton. And mm-hmm. for me, the important thing to remember is that what you're investing in here is not his potential necessarily, but the fact that he is probably not that far from a finished product of what he's going to be as a player in the NBA. I mean, you know, people have been wildly wrong about these projections before, but from what I have seen, he does look like he will at least be able to be a solid rotation piece possibly fairly quickly even a starter but he's not going to be a star he just doesn't have the tools and if that is what you're expecting in this draft you are probably going to be disappointed almost anywhere you're drafting just because of the kind of the the lack of really top 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 uh, prospects near the top of the draft so with that with all that said Tyrese Halliburton somewhere north of 14 
I think I could be pretty happy with depending what they give up. Yeah, I could see him going in the early lottery. I could see him s- slipping. Um, but certainly is the type of player that uh, could go ahead and fit into. Again, there, I feel like there's, it's not just a Celtics problem, but there's a few teams like the Warriors, for example, who are drafting pretty high up that it's, you need a, you need a mature kid to come through those doors because you can't have a hothead. I don't know uh, any of the balls, but it seems to me that trying to integrate them into a really established culture, culture could be difficult compared to maybe some of these other kids. Um, Devin Vassell. I love this kid. Uh, admittedly, I'm not a huge college hoops fan, so I can't tell you too much about him. Justin, you and I, I think we're in his media session. He just blew my barn doors off. I thought he was slick. I thought he was honest. And that's the, the really kind of guy that I hope the Celtics bring in. Um, he's three and D uh, he's defense first. He talks about it as such. I mean, we saw with Grant Williams, uh, he had a few key buckets down the stretch, but you just needed a body that was in the right place at the right time reliably. Um, it's, we're not asking uh, the next iteration of Celtics to come in and be the franchise stars. You just need people who know what to do and can be coached. And this kid, Devin, Maybe a reach at 14. I probably, I mean, I think my opinion. He's being mocked, mocked higher than that. Like yeah, he's, he's, he's mocked at 10 on ESPN. Yep. So yeah. Don't I, tell anyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but basically we need, we need a role player and more. So a guy that's like, can fit in for like the next year or two as like the eighth, ninth guy can maybe crack the rotation and eventually become a starter. You know what I mean? That, that, that type of player. I do like Devin Vassell. I have a couple of questions, though, about him, uh, particularly as far as his fit just with this roster goes. I think a lot of the things that he's good at are things that Jason Tatum is better at. And uh, I don't necessarily see him taking minutes away in that spot. It's always nice to have more wings. And I know that Danny Ainge is a big (laughs) subscriber to that philosophy. But uh, I do think that Vassell, Vassell's game with Tatum is a little bit redundant. I also don't love that he was shooting pretty well in college and then changed his shot again in the offseason. No, that, he, discu- that he discussed that in media day. He said it was a bad camera angle. He I don't believe him. <laughs> <laughs> I do believe in his shot, though. I do. Because, I mean, you don't shoot the damn three ball that many times and have it go in at that rate if you don't actually know how to shoot the three ball, if he continues to shoot the ball like that, and trust me, everyone in the world is going to be looking at how he's shooting it. Maybe we need to be a little bit more nervous, but I, I, I'm a big believer in his shot. I'm not too worried about that. Can I say something a little galaxy brain here? So uh, this is something we've discussed in previous podcasts, but assuming a uh, friend of the pod, Danny Ainge is playing 3d chess. Part of one of the, um, reasons I would wonder if he would trade up. I've seen the number six pick connected to the Celtics in uh, recent days is that the number six pick earns $4.8 million. And if you are the 14th pick, you make $2.8 million. And part of the reason that, you know, it's going to be hard for the Celtics to take these three picks and just throw them to another team to move up or something is not everyone has three roster spots. And so if you can consolidate an asset and if you can somehow turn your draft capital into one, uh, again, a, f- a $4.8 million contract, which is uh, 
or actually, no, sorry, the six picks is over 5 million. I, I read that wrong. It's 5.01 or 5.08. Uh, that's something that can be moved in future trades. One of the things, again, we've discussed before is Marcus Smart is making in the low teens and then everyone north of that is in the 20s and 30s. And it's just, there's not that much flexibility in trading. So I wonder if the, the smoke that we've heard about uh, possibly the Celtics trading up is so that you have a few more contracts that are a real chunk of change to use in a Bradley Beal trade or a James Harden trade. I think, I think it's I was going to say, I don't think Ainge is losing sleep over which 19 year old kid he's going to add to his Eastern conference finals contender. I think he's got bigger fish to fry. Absolutely. That's exactly where I was going. Um, Basically there is a decision tree for a plan. There is not a plan. There are connected plans and some of it is under the control. Some of it is completely not, but exactly what you're talking about, being able to be, be flexible and take a person that maybe can fit your system. Uh, Okoro, for example, could be, um, as we were saying, salary match in a trade because he's a very desirable position, more wing depth and more defense. That's great. If we get stuck with him, that's great. Um, maybe it's not the ideal person you want in a draft, but it's also very hard to get that person in any draft. And the salary is something that you can throw a little bit more easily than, as you were saying, three, three roster spots. Um, flexibility, I think, is the plan. So if we, if we are hearing something that sounds smoky, there very well may be some fire to it, but there's probably several fires in a low-burning low uh, ember state, I guess you could say. And realistically, it's going to be decision tree after decision tree after decision tree, um, all culminating into a loose set of goals um, surrounding these needs and, and, and wants that the team has. Um, at least that's my take on, on what I heard from Danny and, and what it looks like they're doing. Do we have any other um, would-be draft prospects that anyone wants to shout out before we wrap this slash I get to do my Miles Turner tirade? I have two, um, and these are picks that, based on most of the mocks I've seen, we're probably looking at closer to 26 and 30 than we are 14. It's possible that they go earlier than that. Uh, the kind of the draft after 15 or 16 is pretty wild in terms of where people are going. They're kind of all over the place. But two guys to keep an eye on. Uh, one, Alexei Pokusevsky, um, who, you know, Alexi, I think, will need some time to develop. He is rail thin, and if brought into the league right now, I think he would get bullied by some of the bigger, stronger NBA players. But as a guy that you could stash in Europe, potentially, for a season or two, if he fills out a bit, he's got some real uh, ball-handling skills for a man of his size. And given the way that the NBA is trending with more playmaking coming from the front court, from the four and five, I think Alexi could be kind of, if, if you give him a couple of years to fill out and develop a little bit, I think he could be an interesting wrinkle uh, that uh, NBA offenses all across the league could use. You know, you see the success of people like Adebayo and Jokic, who uh, are not only physical and strong, but also can kind of, get rebounds and then run in the open court and set up their teammates. Pokusevsky would be a guy who could in theory be that with a couple of years of development. 
And the last dude that uh, I have had my eye on is Desmond Bain out of TCU. This guy is just a oh, classic. Yeah. He's a classic three and D wing. Uh, I don't think he's ever going to be a great player, uh, but I think he could definitely be a quality option off the bench or maybe as a fifth starter. Uh, Desmond is an uncomplicated player. He hits threes and he defends and that's what he does. Um, but given what the Celtics are looking for going forward into this season, they might just need uh, somebody who can hit a quarter three and D up against opposing guards. So that's a guy to keep your eye on for 26 or 30. Definitely. I would like to play off of that as well, particularly Pokusevsky. Um there have been a lot of people talking, like almost every mock draft that I've seen has is taking Leandro Bomaro at 26. And I get the idea to stash him. He's already on a team, so you know, he's under contract, so you know that you can stash him. And he does have um, some interesting passing ability. He's got size. He's definitely interesting. But I'm really not sure he's going to work out. And I do think that players like... Pokushevsky and Killian Tilly, for example, they also have some pretty big uh, red flags, but it's not in the talent. You know, the talent is there. There's other issues. Weight with Pokushevsky, um, Tilly with all the, the medical stuff. Um, I would rather bet on the pre-existing talent rather than hoping it develops if I'm going to stash somebody uh, and hope that the other things, not hope that the other things, but you know what I mean. Um, hope that if it is something, it's not one of those issues that ends up turning my, my, my draft and stash into the next, uh, I don't know, Yabu. God forbid. That, that one hurt, Justin. No <laughs> Yabu slander will be tolerated here. I, I love Yabu that. as a person, but I mean, he's yeah, as a, a good as a player. Contributing basketball player, that's very different. Um, that dude is the pride of the Chinese Basketball League and is dominating over there. <laughs> one more uh, thing. Also, let me just... Yeah, go for it. Aaron Niesmith. I would really... I feel like there's a really good chance the Celtics take him. I see his name all over the place. Go on, tell us tell us everything. So, I mean, shooting over 50% from three, yes, there's a very good chance it's going to drop, but, I mean, if it drops 10%, we still have elite-level shooting in the NBA. Um, that's probably about where I am envisioning it, and he has really been working on his game. Uh, I do expect to see in a lot of prospects, not just him, but in a lot of prospects, um, a surprising jump. Really, I guess it shouldn't be so surprising seeing how long they've been working on things. Um, so while he also is never going to be a star, again, just to keep returning to we need shooting, we need offense. Um, and you know, he's at least a good defender, if not a great defender. I think he would be an excellent choice for, for Boston around 14. If Neesmith learns how to do landing mechanics off of dunks that won't shatter both of his kneecaps, he's going to be a really good player. <laughs> Easier said than done, I think. <laughs> um, this guy, uh, I guess he's not a kid. He's been playing with grown men for a while. Malachi Flynn, he mm. seems like he can really, he's a point guard. Uh, he's been playing, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, with Tel Aviv. Um, he, he's a pick and roll uh, dynamo and that's how I envision Robert Williams having a long career in the NBA I would really love for the Celtics to find a point guard who can definitively run the second unit there's no pecking order and he just throws lobs to Rob Williams throughout the 
first half of the second quarter and second half of the third quarter for the entire season. Nothing would make me happier. So uh, I think that kid is, is maybe a name to look out for, but I mean, who's to say that the Celtics use any of these picks, right? That is the big elephant in the room. And we don't need to talk about uh, what they could do with it because we would be here for another hour. <laughs> you do have something specific you might want to discuss. You alluded to it earlier. Relative. Okay. Yes. <laughs> You've been talking about uh, it online as well. I just think it's loser talk to bring in $17 million worth of Miles Turner as the way to go ahead and win the NBA championship. Uh, it's it's great that he averages north of two blocks per game, but, but his offensive game looks like something from 1998. And <laughs> Jason Tatum is the future, not uh, egalitarian communist offense centered around five people who can average 12 points a game. So uh, do something with Gordon Hayward if he's on his way out the door, but I am so shocked at how many folks are ready to bring Miles Turner into the fold, even if he loves Legos and yoga, because who doesn't? Uh, how many years does Turner have on his deal left? Two. Two years, all right. Uh, we have Miles Turner at home. His name is Robert Williams, and he's yeah. going to be better than him. So, Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love that confidence. That. Yes, <laughs> love it. I think people fundamentally misunderstood the, the idea behind the people who actually were proposing such a trade and it's not for an upgrade. It's explicitly not for an upgrade. It's can we, who's the best player that we can find that we can realistically trade for Gordon Hayward if he is leaving and how can we break his salary into pieces while we're doing it? So that way we retain some flexibility and can maybe shed some cap. That is the idea behind that. If you think that, you know, and I think that Miles Turner might be a much better player then he looks on Indiana based on the structure of the team, blah, 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 blah. But again, you are not trading for Turner if the, the goal of the trade is to become a contender more so than you are now. It's to retain value. Uh, is that a tease for our next episode? Could be. You never know. <laughs> Just a quick plug, folks. I have a piece on the Celtics draft paths that covers a lot of what we've talked about, but goes a little bit more in depth. Uh, that's coming up hopefully in the next couple of days uh, on OTG basketball, uh, please follow my Twitter feed at designer underscore smarf. If you want to uh, get in on that, see where that's going. And uh, hopefully Cameron has edited it so that it's not absolutely slop. I was going to say, if you find any errant spelling errors that that's above my pay grade, I didn't do that. Uh, but it is, it is a good piece. And uh, as much ink is being spilled over, the Celtics drafts on November 18th. I think Alex is offering one shop stopping one stop shopping. Excuse one me. One stop shopping. I like it. Well, you can find the pod on most podcatcher apps. Please subscribe. So you never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, five stars, please don't like something or have a suggestion. See a BOD with a hashtag in front of it. We're always trying to bring you the best Boston Celtics coverage we can get you in, considering what week it is and all the craziness in the NBA. You're welcome.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.